Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Toro. Top-notch custom-fit technology helps tour pros feather and iron to a tight front pin. Now using the technology on Toro's new Greensmaster Flex Series Walk Greens mower, superintendents can dial in that same exceptional, precise level of operator performance on even the most contoured greens. The Greensmaster's bale feathering feature let the operator slow down or speed up by putting more or less pressure on the bale and stay hands-on even through the tightest turns. The melding of the operator and machine continues with the telescoping handle that ensures perfect harmony between the mower and operator, tall or short, and the handle's rubber mounts have just enough cushion to prevent any hand movements from influencing the cut. For putting surfaces so pure, they'll make a tour pro tip their cap. Trust the Toro Greens Master. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Today's episode is with Chevy Chase Country Club's Director of Grounds, Stephen Britton. Stephen's uh, one of my favorite people in the turf industry. He is into golf history, professional golf, golf course architecture. Really, he is a golf tragic. He came over from Australia. Really interesting story. So without further ado, here is Stephen Britton. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Was Royal Melbourne the first of the great Australian courses you played growing up? Um, uh, no. So I, I grew up, I actually grew up about a mile from the front gates of Peninsula Kingswood. You know, when I, back then it was called Peninsula Country Club. It was always a good golf course, 36 holes there. And um, it's amazing now, Mike Cocking redid both the golf courses it's really good but I grew up about a mile from that golf course I used to pick balls there on the range after high school and we would get to play there as an employee I would I used to pick balls on the range and clean clubs in the bag room and worked in the pro shop every now and then and so you would we were allowed to play and practice there so that was probably the first that was probably the first good golf course I played um, I grew up playing golf at a, at a public golf course down the street from Peninsula. It was right next to the city dump. If the wind blew, the whole golf course smelled like rubbish the whole day. It was covered in seagulls. All you'd ever hear is the reverse buzzers of the dozers pushing the rubbish over. But it was great. It was $300 for unlimited golf for 12 months. Um, and so I used to play there. And then when I was working at Peninsula, you know, I could, as an employee, get to play there a little bit. Um, so that would have been the first good golf course that I, that I played. And then as I got a little, as I got a little bit better, we joined a private club, which is on the same road, but next door to Peninsula called Long Island. Um, and that's a good sandbelt golf course. It was really good. Um, so they was that, that, those kind of those courses in that Frankston area, they would have been the first ones I saw. That's 
It sounds a lot like my uh, growing <clears throat> up in golf. I, I we our junior membership I think was three hundred bucks. Play all I wanted except for like Saturday Sunday mornings were like the restrictions. And then uh, you know I'd play it Knollwood when I had playing privileges just from working it and. It was that was the way to do it, I, and, but it was so nice the days you got to play the country club, you know, versus yeah. the the Muni. Oh yeah, like I I remember. So the Muni had power greens, and the country club had bent grass greens then. And I remember going and playing Peninsula, and like mate of mine that was working there that kind of got me the job on the range. I remember him telling me like, "Hey, these are bent grass greens, really different than what." we've been putting on and they were firmer and faster and smoother. I remember thinking like, I feel like I can hold every putt on these. Like I never, that was the first time I kind of ever knew the difference between poa and bent grass. I just figured they were all greens before then. I feel like when you're a kid too, when you, you know, you're learning the game, when you switch to those fast greens and then you go to the, it's such a huge adjustment when you're a kid, like, like you can't get your bearings right on the, on the speed of putts. I, that's something I just remember. Like when I play fast screens, I'd have so much trouble. Then I go back to the media, I'd have trouble getting them to the hole. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they were the best days though. That the Muni course that I grew up at, had tons of kids my age and we just spent every day there you would we play every day after school and we play skins games and like after school it was quiet and like seven of us we play like a group of seven and play skins for balls and stuff like that and it was they were the best days playing golf back then it was tons of fun but when, um, when did you start working grounds at royal melbourne Okay, so um, when I finished high school, I was I loved golf. I was obsessed with golf then. I was playing golf a lot. And so I knew I wanted to work in golf, but I wasn't ever going to be good enough to do, you know, be a club pro or anything like that or work in a pro shop. And so I just kind of decided I wanted to be I wanted to be a greenskeeper. And so that would have that was 1994. And so that was like before the internet and emails, I think people were probably email and then I wasn't. And I sent, uh, I, I wrote letters, I mailed them to the 10 best clubs in Melbourne. Like I picked, you know, Royal Melbourne, Victoria, Kingston Heath, Metropolitan, um, Woodlands, Yarra Yarra, Huntingdale, all those. And I just wrote this letter. I can't even remember what it said, but it said, you know, I'm a junior golfer and I, I want to be a greenskeeper and I was looking for an apprenticeship. So they do schooling really different in Melbourne than America. There you get hired as an apprentice after high school and the club employs you as a full-time employee and you kind of go to school one week every month. Like, so you'd work three weeks and then you'd go to school for a week and you do that for, for four years um, and then after that, you're like a fully qualified greenskeeper. I kind of like that model. It was the best system. Yeah, it was great. I wish something like that was over here. Maybe there is, but it's really different here. Like my guys that work for me who have gone to college here, you know, greenskeeping is just like one class they take. They're taking all these other classes that they have to do. And then they, 
they just do a summer internship for 90 days and that's kind of it but yeah we would work and go to school and it was it was the best way to do it um and the club pays for that like when you're hired as an apprentice they pay your tuition to go to school and so you make you're, you're making money because you're you're working but the club uh covers your tuition so as dumb luck would have it out of those 10 letters royal melbourne jim porter was the superintendent of royal melbourne he was like the fourth superintendent in the club's history and he got back to me and said hey we're looking for an apprentice do you want to come in and he put me on like a three-month trial um and that so it just it was just luck right like that's just that was just happened to be the right place at the right time and and he put me on a trial and he hired me as an apprentice so they would so a lot of clubs would hire like one apprentice every four years right like when you finish your apprenticeship they'd start to look for another one mm-hmm. and and so i was that guy at royal melbourne i didn't even have a driver's license my mum drove me to the job interview like i was i think i was 17 i just finished high school and so i worked there for eight years it was it was great it was a so Best after school. you did the apprenticeship, you work for four more years. No, you, so you do your apprenticeship for four years, and then most clubs you stay on, and you're a fully qualified greenskeeper. So that's that's your full time job then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So f- after the apprenticeship, you did four more years there. Oh yes, you're right. Yeah. So I actually did. I did an apprenticeship, and then I did more schooling. I did a diploma class. So the the way to think of that for a in American terms is think of it as like a two-year degree or a four-year degree. So the apprenticeship would be thought of as probably a two-year degree. And then if you do extra schooling, the diploma course, that would be your bachelor's. That would be the four-year degree. So I did, I did that after my apprenticeship, um, which was one night a week for two, I think it was two or three years now. And it was, um, it was every Wednesday night from like three o'clock in the afternoon to nine o'clock at night. So you're still working, but you would go and do that, that class in the evenings. How were your role? Like when you started, I assume you were doing all the grunt stuff, but by the time you're at the end of the eight years, what type of stuff were you doing for the club and the grounds crew? Yeah. So when you start out, you, you feel in tea divots and raking bunkers and you don't really get to mow a lot. And then, but as time goes on, they, They'd say, hey, you know, today we're going to teach how to mow green and, you know, we're going to teach you to mow fairways. And, and then you'd work your way all the way up until you were spraying because that's spraying is quite an important thing, obviously, and it's um, you kind of you put your best guys on that. So, yeah, by the end, you're the one spraying greens and especially if you're hosting tournaments, which we did at Royal Melbourne, like that when you're spraying greens kind of the week before the tournament, that can be nerve wracking. Right. Yeah. Um, Didn't Tiger play in that time frame down there at, or was that at Kingston Heath that he played in that, like maybe late nineties? Um, I don't, so that, so nine, so when I worked there, we had the, we had the Greg Norman Holden classic. That was a, a tournament that Norman had, on the Australasian PJ tour. And then we had the 98 president's cup, which I was there for. And then we had a couple of Heineken's after that, which were kind of European to a Australasian tour events. Mm-hmm. 
So it was an exciting time. There was an exciting time to work there, especially with the President's Cup. That was the first time the President's Cup had come to Australia. It's the only one we've ever won, right? Mm-hmm. So that was it. Was a it was an exciting time to work at the club. It was it was great. What uh, what do you look back on? I I, I mean, you were seventeen years old through twenty four. I, I assume your interest in architecture probably peaked at a later age. You might have been generally interested in it, but what do you look back on and th- and think about when now? Like I, I know you go back to Australia and you been back to Royal Melbourne a bunch of times but like what are things that you overlooked about Royal Melbourne that you now look at as you know a head superintendent somebody that's been in the industry for a couple decades if you grow up in Melbourne and and you're playing those courses and I know lots of the guys from Melbourne say this and especially the good players that come over to America like you kind of you kind of think that that's what how all the courses look right Mm-hmm. Um, because back then in the 90s on TV, like we didn't have cable TV back then. And so you'd only get to see the Masters and you wouldn't see week to week PGA Tour events in America. So I just remember thinking like this is what all golf courses were and this is how they're all mown. And But it, when you leave there, I think you realise, that's when you realise how great it is right, and how everything we did there was great. The way we managed the water, we never overwatered and we were always really lean with the water and the way they mowed the golf course. Every, like I remember thinking like every, mowing everything to the bunkers and, you know, mowing short grass all the way to the bunkers around the greens. I remember just thinking that was normal. And when I first came to, and then when I came to America, you, I mean, you see all the bunkers in the rough and there's rough all the way around the greens and, you start to realize like, oh, geez, we, we do it really different in Melbourne than to everybody else. How has Melbourne evolved since the since you worked on it in early 2000s to like what we saw in the President's Cup? How, how has it evolved in its maintenance practices? Or is it pretty much the same? Has the, has the course changed at all? So like architecturally, it hasn't changed. I, th- I think they've done some stuff right since I when I was there, they, really change anything it agronomically i think it's changed quite a bit because so when i worked there we had uh on the fairways we would have what they called a two grass system so in the in the winter time all this native poa would come up in the fairways and the fairways would just turn into poa fairways and then at the end of the winter the poa would would fizzle out and die off. Sometimes we'd spray it out. Sometimes we'd just let it fizzle away. And then all this native Bermuda grass, cooch grass would come up and the fairways would be Bermuda fairways in the summer. And it was, I think it was unique to Royal Melbourne. I can't remember if all the Sandbelt clubs had that years ago, but when I was at Royal Melbourne, that's how it was. You had Poa fairways in the winter and Bermuda fairways in the summer. And so that they got away from that over time because i think you know the it's that's that's a tough transition to transition out from poa to bermuda and you get some bare spots coming into the summer and you know it doesn't get that cold in melbourne you can have really you can have good bermuda fairways in in the winter so they got away from that at some point which is probably a good thing um because it means the fairways are 
better year round. Um, and so now the, the green surrounds now are fine fescue around the greens, which when I was there, they were actually mostly poa around the greens and some bent grass. Um, and the fine fescue that Richard Forsyth's the superintendent there now that, that he's put in, and they're amazing. I mean, they're firm and fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, great to chip off of the best lies. And, um, and the, with the fine fescue, he can spray certain herbicides to keep the poa out, which will stop the poa getting in the greens, which is really important there. Oh, that's interesting. So that fescue surround, because of the way you can spray it, actually it creates like almost like a buffer for the poa. Right. They have a, so they'll have a program where they'll they'll spray certain herbicides that that it's that are really the fine fescue is quite tolerant to some of these herbicides that will help keep the poa out of that fine fescue. So that helps out. Whereas when I was there, it was poa all around the greens, and so it was hard to keep poa from getting into the greens. Would but, that would that work in like the Midwest? Like say Chicago? Cause I know like one of the, you know, Poa getting into the greens is something common here. And I'm just, you know, I don't know. Like, but I mean, he's mowing everything there's mowing low. And mm-hmm. so you'd have to do the same thing. I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Um, but it works there. Cause there, there's no Poa on that golf course at all at Royal Melbourne. Um, I think that might work at Cal Club too, right? Cal Club does that. So yeah, that's really similar program. Yep, everything's fine fescue, right? Fine fescue fairways at Cal Club. Mm-hmm. Everything around the greens is fine fescue. So they have a really good program there to keep it out. So yeah, that's re- that's a good point. It's really similar to their setup. Um, so, and when I was there, when I so when I was there, the the greens on. The non-composite course, okay, they were the original, what they were called, Sutton's Greens that Mick Morecambe seeded when they did the renovation with Alistair McKenzie and Alex Russell. And then the composite course greens were actually Pencross, so American bent grass that they'd converted, I think, sometimes in the 80s. I'm not too sure. And the superintendent that I worked for, he, they, the club had decided that they were going to try to put the Sutton's Greens back which was hard to do because you don't know, they don't know what grass that is, right? Sutton's was a seed company in England that in the twenties golf courses in America and around the world would buy just greens grass seed from this company in England. And that's what you seeded your greens to. And you know, I don't think they never knew exactly what was in the mix. So those greens had segregated out to the parent plant. So those greens at certain times of the year would have, purple patches and dark green patches and light green patches. And so they took samples out of each one of those different patches and a company in New Zealand grew the grass and got them to set seed. I don't know that. I don't really know the whole process, but they came up with the closest thing they could imagine to the original seed mix. So they recreated it. They recreated it. That's what, uh, Jim started the superintendent that I worked for and so in my first year we we sod cut the the 12th east green which was the smallest green on the golf course and we seeded it to that seed mix and kind of replicated what that those greens were seeded to in the 20s and so it was a really exciting time we ended up doing the whole golf course to that and that's what they have today 
Yeah, you know, last week we saw Wingfoot, and I think one of the neatest things about that restoration was how that they preserve the the grass from the greens, like the poa, um, and they didn't go with that brand new like they you know they basically use the same grass and in Royal Melbourne's case, just figuring out a way to recreate the seed to get that same grass. Right. Yeah. So that that all happened when I was there, which was really great to be around and it's turned out great today the greens are the greens are all melbourne unbelievable i think all year like not just for the tournaments they're great every day when did you uh leave australia why why did you leave australia well you're you're rising rising superstar at royal melbourne what what got you out of the country <laughs> so in 2000, the so we had the 98 President's Cup at Royal Melbourne and in 2000, they had the President's Cup over here in Virginia at Robert Trent Jones Golf Club. And I can't remember the exact connection, but there was a connection between the two clubs a little bit and, and there was an opportunity for a couple of us from Royal Melbourne to come over and work that event. Myself and a, another guy on the staff at the time, we came over to work the 2000 president's cups at Robert Trent Jones. And so at the time, well, still there now today, Scott Furlong was the superintendent and Glenn Smickley, who's now general manager at cow club. He was the general manager at Robert Trent Jones. And I came over and we all kind of hit it off and became friends and we stayed in touch. And I went back to Royal Melbourne and, you know, not a lot would change at Royal Melbourne back then that, like I said, Jim was like the fourth superintendent in the club's history and the assistant had been there for a long time. And uh, so when, in 2003, Scott contacted me and said, hey, we have an assistant position opened up at Robert Trent Jones. Would you be interested in coming over and being an assistant here? And it, it was the best thing for me because, you know, I, I loved working at Royal Melbourne. It was great in but I, you know, I probably needed to grow up a little bit. I was a little immature. And so packing my bags and coming to America and taking on an assistant position was, in hindsight, the best thing for me. And it kind of made me get a little more serious about things. And they had already, they had, they had the 2005 President's Cup kind of locked in. So I thought, wow, this is a good opportunity to come over and see what America is about and, also, I'll be an assistant superintendent for the 2005 President's Cup. So it sounds like cliche, but I packed two bags and emptied my bank account, which wasn't much, and moved over. And then I, the club helped me get a visa. So I, I, well, first I came over on Mike O'Keefe's Ohio State program on, on his J-1 visa, and then the club helped me help to get me a a longer visa to stay for six years and that was it yeah the club that that club's probably got some you know they can pull the strings on the visas easier than a lot of clubs yeah they have (laughs) they have those kind of people that's for sure yeah um moving so you move halfway across the world and you move I, i was it more jarring moving from melbourne to America and getting used to the American lifestyle or moving from growing grass at Royal Melbourne to growing grass in the mid Atlantic. Well, I know I, well, I, so I'd been away once already in, I, I left, 
I took a year off from Royal Melbourne to go to, to the UK and I worked at Wimbledon at the All England Tennis Club. So I, moaned, I worked at the tennis club and looked after grass tennis courts for almost a year at Wimbledon. So I'd been away from how'd home. You get, how'd you get that job? The sa- same thing. A guy at Royal Melbourne uh, knew somebody who, who was at Wimbledon and they were looking for kind of seasonal greenskeepers. And I got approached and said, hey, is this something you'd want to do? And my dad's British. And so my dad's whole side of the family live in England. And again, I was obsessed with golf and I'd become interested in golf course architecture, right? That was when, you know, I was kind of one of those early guys on Golf Club Atlas and was looking at Golf Club Atlas four days a week. And so you start to learn about all these great clubs over there. And I thought, geez, this would be a good opportunity to go work at Wimbledon. But while I'm there, I can go and see Sunningdale and Woking and Walton Heath and you know, and go up to St Andrews and try to visit golf courses as well. And so that's what I did. I went over, uh, I worked there in, so I went over there before the President's Cup at at Robert Trent Jones. So I was there for the 2000 Wimbledon Championships. We had the Davis Cup that year as well. So we did, we did the 2000 Championships and then we had the Davis Cup right after that. Um, And it was great. It was great to learn a another side of greenskeeping on tennis courts and talk about what how is it different like how do you maintain a grass tennis court differently than a golf course obviously they're both playing surfaces or is there similarities and differences i mean so they're kind of moan a little bit lower than what i would say is a tee height right like but tennis courts you're trying to get them rock hard i mean we would we would mow them with the same mowers we'd mow a golf course green with and, but then we would roll the courts with like a, with like a road, like an asphalt steamroller, you know? And so we would try to get them rock hard. Um, there's not a lot of turf other than the courts at Wimbledon, like the whole place is cement, you know, and then there's these grass courts. They have clay courts um, for the members. It's a members club, right? The All England yeah. Club, ever membership. And there's indoor courts in the wintertime and they have croquet courts as well and, and then they have the the championship courts. So, but it was great. I I got to work there for the year and visited, tried to visit as many golf clubs as I could. That was kind of what I was more interested in, to be honest with you. I went up, you know, went up to St Andrews and. One quick question: How how much firmer? Like, if I hit a golf shot and on a Wimbledon grass court, would it just like bounce forever? Yeah, I mean they crack out, right? The, like the baselines after a few days in the tournament, they're cracking open. Like there's cracks in them where you can see, you know, a few inches down. So, oh yeah, they're rock hard. Yeah. Their ball, you'd never stop it. They'd bounce and bounce off the court. Interesting. And then the grass stays alive and everything. So that's just the, yeah. the end of the spectrum of, uh, of how firm you could get turf. Yeah. I mean, the baselines struggle at the, you know, by the end of the two weeks, they've, they're usually pretty beat up because that's why they're running back and forth. But it was funny that at the time, this, so the superintendent at Wimbledon at the time was a man named Eddie Seward who'd been there forever. He was kind of like a legend in tennis court maintenance in England. He was a really, really great guy, uh, really old school, wore a shirt and tie to work, you know, wore a tie to work every day. And 
geez, he, he was just really good at it. And, but their seed mix, I remember asking them what this, what seed they would use back then. It was a secret. They had kind of blended their own and they didn't really want anyone to know. And, but it was a good place. But like I said, I was kind of more interested in yeah. visiting golf courses and playing golf over there. And I went to St. Andrews right after the 2000 British Open and I didn't get to play though because it was so busy then because the British Open had just finished. All the stands were still up and they were just packed. But I caught the train up after work and spent the weekend up there. And I think I walked the course like 10 times and took photos. I went up there by myself and just spent the weekend at St. Andrews by myself just to see the old course. And it was a good time. What was your, you know, you're at this point early 20s and uh you're getting into architecture what were your like what did you learn over there that you didn't really understand having just played in australia which in melbourne which is obviously one of the great golf cities too oh, i i remember i remember thinking like some of the heath courses in london they were a bit like melbourne you know like because they have heath between the t- like a lot of Clubs in Melbourne will have Heath from the tee to the beginning of the fairway. And it's a lot of the courses there would as well. I remember thinking like, geez, I was surprised how similar some of them were to Melbourne. And the old course, I remember walking around that. I wasn't playing. And so it's really hard to try to figure out what's what. I remember walking it for the first time and not even knowing which way holes were going and where greens were. and Because you can just walk around it. There's a, there was like a seashell path that went around the whole golf course. And I just used to walk around that over and over and I'd walk out into the holes when there was no play and no groups. And, but that, so that was really good. We're really different to America, but yeah, so, so I'd been away for a year. So coming to America wasn't as daunting because I'd already been gone once. Um, but yeah, really different. Like of all the places I could have chosen to come and work in America, the mid-Atlantic and the DC area is, I didn't know at the time how hard it was to grow grass here because it's really hot in the summer and, you know, you're only growing cool season grasses and, and then greenskeeping was really, and that, that was really different than back home. That was the biggest learning curve, way different. Uh, what was the, was there a early mess up you, you do something that you just killed a bunch of grass because you just didn't know that it was gonna get the way it was gonna get like so hot and humid or something no because i mean so when i went to robert trent jones i mean big staff high expectations so i was one of four assistant superintendents and so you know you're like the entry level guy and mm-hmm. the three older guys kind of say hey this is how we do it and this is how you keep it alive and you just so you kind of learn right like you you learn through being there every day and being around those guys um because that's in the summer that's what it's about it's like just keeping it alive right that's like number one as opposed to you know i imagine it so much different than royal melbourne or even england yeah i mean it gets hot in melbourne but it gets cool at night and that's the difference here it gets hot here and it stays hot during the night and it's so humid here um i mean yeah july 4th to labor day here it's hold on to what you got and just try to get to the fall that's kind of the rule of thumb that everyone in this area goes by because if it gets wet in the summertime and we start to get those storms and 
The worst is when you get a downpour in the afternoon and then the sun comes back out and it's blazing hot. That's when everyone's kind of white knuckled and really worried. Wet summers in DC are when people have a lot of problems. Now for a quick word from our sponsor. For more than a century with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Now back to Stephen Britton. You talked about how greenskeeping was so much different just the generally here and getting that was a huge adjustment. What in what ways was it different than Australia? I mean, so like all the obvious stuff you could probably think of, right? Like we didn't we didn't do anything to rough in Melbourne. We didn't water the rough and we didn't even mow it that much and but it's a really different golf course in melbourne they were on sand and native roughs and so you hit your ball in the sand you hit your ball in the rough and you could be in bare sand or you could be in grass and you never really know but over here the roughs are perfect and fertilize the rough and spray the rough and we water the rough and the rough gets mown two or three times a week and that was different. I remember thinking, geez, spending as much time in the rough as we are on fairways. And I just wasn't used to that in Melbourne. We just, you didn't even look at the, you know, we didn't think about the rough. So that, you know, that was a surprise. And there's the level of greenskeeping was the expectations are so much higher and than what it was back then. I mean, it was the, I think greenskeeping in general, like in the mid nineties, I think golfers' expectations, not just like pro golf, have, are so much higher now than they were 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think Royal Melbourne back in the 90s, I think we only ranked the bunkers twice a week. I don't remember hearing any complaints about the bunkers back then. And, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how often they rank them now, but I mean, at Robert Jones, we rank the bunkers every day. And, you know, it was set up, it was almost like a tournament set up every day. It felt like some members had it their way. You'd probably rake them in the middle of the day too. Yeah. I bet there's some courses out there that do that a bit. Um, so that was, that was really different. That was, that took some getting used to just the, the different maintenance expectations and the different way they looked at things and drastically different style of golf too. Like, I mean, RTJ, I haven't been out there, but I've I've looked at it. I mean, extremely aerial versus Royal Melbourne, extremely ground oriented. Is I mean, about as polar opposite as you could get. Yeah, and I, like I remember, they don't do it anymore. But we used to rake the bunkers all the way up to the face, which I think a lot of courses in America were doing back then. And you know, in Melbourne, we would keep all the faces smooth we never would rake them and we wanted them to be rock hard and don't touch them and even some moss or you get like a crusty kind of layer growing on getting on the sand and we wanted that because we wanted the balls to roll back down and i remember thinking like geez it's funny they rake up the face i didn't think you'd want that like 
and it wasn't just that club like that was the um, kind of the american way to rake bunkers back then was they just raked everything from edge to edge and all over i, I remember coming and thinking i don't know why they do that like i wouldn't think you'd want to do that um and then so it was when i got my first superintendent's job i went back a little bit i said you know i'm not i'm not going to rake the face we're going to keep the faces smooth and we're just going to rake the bottom where was that job at the first superintendent's job was that tpc potomac no i um it was at a tom fazio design golf course uh right down the street from robert trent jones which was great for me because I, you know, the superintendent, Scott at Robert Trent Jones, I was right down the street so I could, I could borrow equipment or I could, that, that was the greatest place for me to start because the expectations weren't as high and I could make some mistakes and it wasn't as much of a catastrophe as it could be at some other clubs. And so I could kind of play around with things and, in some ways they let me kind of do whatever I wanted there. I could change grassing lines and I even added some bent grass around some greens to make it a little bit more like home. Cause there were just some swales where I said, I'm going to take the rough out and put bent grass in here to make a little chipping area. And so I could play around at that place as much as I wanted. It was tons of fun. It was the perfect place to, for my first superintendent's job because I could try to figure my, own way out and if I made a mistake it wasn't wasn't such a big deal and I had the guys at Robert Trent Jones right down the street so yeah that's that's a big part of I feel like uh superintendents and the culture is where you know if you work for somebody or you know you have somebody that works for you and they get a job then it almost becomes like you almost become an unpaid consultant for the uh for that other club right oh yeah and I you know I didn't know it at the time when I went there, but that's what that, that's what Scott's program was all about. Like, Hey, you're going to come in and be an assistant for three or four years and then you're going to go get your own golf course. And um, so there was, there's a big group of uh, guys that have worked at that club that are now superintendents and, and then they all talk and they all, you know, we all have a group text and everybody helps each other. And it's a really, and a lot of them have stayed in the DC area and it's a really good setup. It's almost uh, like a gang, like a gang of superintendents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was a good thing. Um, and then, so I was at that club for four years and then that's when I went to TPC Potomac was, I went to TPC Potomac in 2009. What was, what was it like going from a club culture to uh, the tour, which, you know, you're going to essentially like, it would be like going from, I feel like almost like a startup or mom pop business to a billion dollar company. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it was really different, but it was great. Like I wanted to, I really wanted, cause we'd had tour events at Royal Melbourne and I loved them. I loved working when we would have a professional tournament come to Royal Melbourne, it was really exciting and, I really loved that time. And so to be able to go to a golf course that hosted events was huge. And we, and they, they had the 2010 senior players championship, Marco Mira one. That was the first, that was the first tournament I worked as a superintendent. 
that was the first wow. event back uh, for the course since it was, you know, it's much maligned opening where who, which player, one player just went off on it. <laughs> Called it like a. Well, so the old Avenel, I didn't even, I didn't know any. So the golf course was rebuilt in 2007 and 2008. Steve Winsloff, PJ Tour architect, did the redesign. And I, I never even knew what I knew. I'd heard of Avenel, but I'd never, I couldn't picture any of the old holes. Um, but Greg Norman gave it a, Greg Norman gave it a beating. The ninth hole, he said, yeah, that they should drop a bomb on it and blow it up. There was a, it was a downhill par three, <laughs> and in the redesign, they moved the green up on the hill. But Greg Norman ripped him apart. <laughs> I guess when he would play there, it's a bit ironic that he was the one doing the ripping. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I guess he, the ninth hole in particular. I, I don't know if something bad happened. Maybe I, I don't know what happened, but he said they should drop a bomb on it. Um, so I came in right after they had just reopened. I think they'd only been reopened from for like six months when I started. Um, so yeah, it was really different. I mean, but it was great because I loved pro golf. So working for the PJ Tour was. Was, you know, it was really exciting because you would, you know, you'd hear things about the tour and players. And then it was great because we'd host, I hosted uh, five events in the 10 years I was there. And so I'd love it when Australians would come to play because I would always go and talk to them and say hi to them. And that was always, it was really fun, right? Like trying to, yeah. I'd try to like turn the course up a little bit like it was back home. And so it was good. How does maintenance work? Obviously, at a club, you're you're you've got your greens chair, you've got your GM, and you've got a management structure and everything. But at the end of the day, you're you're the expert. I imagine in the when you're working for TPC Tour, there's a whole corporate structure, and I imagine there's a career path once you're you know in it as a superintendent to where you become somebody that oversees a number of superintendents, right? And so as a superintendent, you probably have a lot more checks and balances at the at the TPC courses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole. So the agronomy team with the PJ Tour, it's kind of split in two. There's there's a TPC group that kind of oversees TPCs. And then there's a competitions group that oversees tournaments on the three other tours that aren't on TPCs. And so. Yeah, you. I, I would have an agronomist and he would come and visit the golf course kind of quarterly on average. And so he would inspect the golf course and inspect your maintenance shop and there was a checklist and um, you would c- kind of work together and try to put together plans of especially how you're going to prepare for tournaments and so yeah, it's yeah. There's a lot of checks and balances. Would they just show up unannounced, or you know when they're coming? No, no, no. You'd know. Oh, you'd know. that'd be uh, crazy if it just showed up with the checklist. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of prep. Your maintenance shop might be a bit dirty and gotten a bit sideways, and so there'd be some cleaning going on before. It'd almost be better if they just showed up randomly. That's how they would probably get the truest. Bit. They're great guys. They would never do that. But no, they would. They would give you. They would let you know when they're coming. Did you kind of have like a box that you had to keep the course in, where it, you, yeah, you know, where at the at the Fazio course you worked at after um, RTJ, 
you could you kind of colored outside the lines. You you yeah. did some improvisation. I imagine it was was it much more frowned upon in the in the at the tour. A little. I mean, so oh yeah. Well, you would have to you would have to get several people to sign off on things. If yeah, I couldn't just go out and change the golf course because I decided that I'm going to widen that fairway by 30 yards and I'm going to, I'm going to rip out all the rough around the green and make short grass all around the green. You couldn't do that, but you could suggest you'd work with your agronomist and, and the design team. And you would say, Hey, in my opinion, I think this hole would be better if we did this. And sometimes they'd say yes. And sometimes they'd say no, but you couldn't go and do it yourself. There was several levels of, approval that you had to get um and then that's the same way when you're having a tournament you you have a an agronomist that comes in the week before and you're together every day and you're kind of monitoring the greens and the bunkers and he you know they you start working together on what you think you need to work on to get ready for next week and yeah, I'm interested in that. How working with the tour for a tournament? Obviously, you guys had the uh, you had Tigers event for a couple years in a row. What was it like? What's the run up like? And then as a as a course superintendent, what's the week of and your input levels on pins and week of conditioning um, for for a tournament? So no input on pins. That's all the rules stuff. So it's a tough bout. It's a tough balance, right? I mean, TPC Potomac was a busy club. So you're trying to manage member play, but also get ready to have a tournament and make it look like nobody's been there. Um, and our tournament dates were tough because it was July 4th weekend in the middle of the summer. So that was always tough. But the lead up, you know, we would, it was cart path only for a month to keep the carts out of the rough and, but you'd never get, you'd never, you don't have a say on where the pins are going. That's all the rules staff. They'll, they'll assign a rules official to do front nine, back nine setup. And those guys get to pick what, how they want, where they want the T markers and the pins to go on the front and back nine. Um, and, but you would work together with, you get an advance official who comes in the week before. And so the three of you, your advance, your competitions agronomist, your advance official and, and yourself, you know, you get together and you kind of pick a target stimp, like where you want the stimp to be on the first day and, you know, hey, let's shoot for 12 and a half and we'll ramp up to 13 or low 13s by Sunday. Um, so that, and that was a tough balance. That was always a tough balance for me because maybe being from Australia and I love golf and I like architecture and I want the course to play a certain way. And so I was always leaning towards really drying it out and trying to put it on the edge a little bit. And I feel like we, we in 2017 Quicken Loans, we, I feel like we did, we did well with that. Yeah. That was the one that only a couple guys were under par, right? It was a Kyle Stanley was in it. And if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, Francesco Molinari won the last one, but Kyle Stanley won that one. And yep, so eight under one. It was so it was tough that year, but regardless of scores, I just wanted it to play firm and dry and a little bit like it would be back home. And but that's a tough balance because 
you know, it can look pretty ugly come Sunday when you're doing that, which I didn't care about. I just, well, I just wanted to put on a good golf tournament. <laughs> and, um, but that's tough for the club because, so Jeff Obey and I had this conversation during the Quicken Loans once because we were really dry and he was, he was loving it and, yeah, he can't play. He he was uh, in the interview. He talked about it. it. Was it felt like he was playing in Australia? I remember that. Yeah, I loved that. That that was that was great for me. And he said in the paper a bit that week, like it's good to play on greens that remind me of back home. And so that's what I was kind of going for. But in DC, doing that around July Fourth weekend, that's hard to do without it getting pretty ugly. And it, and and there's never any, it's not disease and it's not anything like that. It just gets dry and it starts to wilt. And, and I was telling Jeff, like, that's a, it's a tough balance because the club's booked God knows how many corporate outings after the tournament. And, you know, they could sell a, they could sell a corporate Monday outing for $80,000 on them, you know, for one day or $100,000 or whatever it is for a week or two after the tournament and now Steven's just gone and put the place on, on edge and it doesn't look so great. And so what does that do for club revenue? And that's when a, you know, a club manager would get a little worried and they don't want, so it's that tough balance, right? Of like you're trying to prepare for a tournament and you want to put it on the edge. And I personally didn't mind how ugly it got because I just wanted it to play good, Mm -hmm. but club management doesn't always want that because how does that affect revenues after the tournament? How does that affect the perception to members that have, haven't played the course for two weeks and now they want to get back out and it's beat up and whatnot. So that for every superintendent that hosts an event, that's always a, that's a tough balance, right? Um, especially because half the time where they're playing events, the weather's never, especially when they get on the East coast, the weather's never right. Yeah. It's only the West, Coast, the West Coast guys get great weather. The East Coast guys, East Coast superintendents, it's always hard because you got most of them are in the summer and you get summer storms on the East Coast. I think that next year, the one where Molinari won and Tiger was in it, Zach Blair was in it. I remember that was the infamous one where Tiger was changing shirts every uh, yeah. every three holes because of how sweaty he was. Yeah, he said it was the hottest round of golf you ever played. I think the heat index was 115. And here I am mowing... The greens four times. Everyone else in the area is babying their greens. defense. I got to mow the greens three or four times and mow the fairways in the evening, and it was hard. And yeah, I I got the I got the reins pulled in a little bit on that second one because I pushed it pretty far in the first one, and so on the second one it was because what what you do is you so they check. They check moisture. So you stimp, you check moisture, and you check firmness every morning and every evening, right? And they, they collect that data and they write it down. And, and then that some greens are wetter than others and some greens are drier than others and some greens stimp quicker than others and whatnot. And me, I didn't. I would just let it go like the year before. I didn't really mind. But that second one, it was like, well, hey, the you know, the fifth green is really dry. I think we need to water that one tonight. Did, so they had kind of have like a box of parameters that they want to keep the course in. Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, it, 
it changes depending on the grasses they're playing on and the area of the country. But they'll they'll pick the week before. They'll say, hey, let's let's shoot to be here on firmness. You know, let's shoot to be stimping around this number and let's keep the greens at kind of this moisture. So they'll they'll pick those three numbers and they'll just try to they'll try to kind of maintain or maybe even just slightly drop off from those numbers by the end of the week. I don't really, I always had a, as I got a little older, I, had a little, I still wrestle with that a little bit because I don't know, seems to be that, seems to me it'd be okay if one green's softer than the other and one green's firmer than the other, right? Like that would make the course play a little bit differently and, it would it would ask players to answer different questions rather than the same one over and over again, right? Yeah, might make yeah. a little bit more interesting uh, golf tournament. Yeah, like it's not their fault. I mean, it's a player run organization. The players have told them that they want consistency, so I don't blame them one bit. But I just think if you have a green that sits down in a hole, um, like the twelfth at Augusta, right? That green's got to always be softer than the other green. The twelfth green at Augusta has to be softer than the eighteenth green at Augusta. It sits in the shade all day. Right. Yeah. And so, like at Royal Melbourne, for example, the third green on the east course, which is on the composite course, is at least in my time was always softer than the sixth green on the west course that is on the composite course. Right. Because the third east green sits way down in a hole. It used to have these huge cypress trees around it, and it was. It was just always a tough green to dry out when, when I worked there. And I feel like that's okay, right? Like you, you feel like the caddy should say, hey, this green yesterday was a bit softer and it sits down in a hole and you should play this one closer to the flag because it'll probably stop quicker. And on the other firm greens, you've got to play it shorter and roll it up. But um, same with the bunkers. Like they want the bunkers to just be all exactly the same and, I don't know. I feel like it would be kind of cooler if they all played a little bit differently. You, it's like this pursuit for uniformity and maintenance when, I mean, if you walk around any, any member of your yard, the, the grass is going to be different in different areas. Like I've got a giant silver maple. The grass is way different there than on my parkway that has no trees on it. You know, like I can't grow the same grass there. And if I if I tr- if I want the same grass, I'm gonna have to spend I'm gonna have to spend eight times as much time and money to get that. That's what happens, yeah. So superintendents are working so hard to get it all playing the same. And in Australia, we just when I think back, and again, it was the '90s, so it was a different time. But I felt like we just didn't get as hung up on that. Like I I put this on Twitter. Mike Clayton and I were going back and forth on Twitter a little while ago, and I. And this same topic came up and I I used the Sixth West at Royal Melbourne as an example. And I don't know about today, but in my time, the front left bunker on the Sixth West at Royal Melbourne was always a boggy bunker. It always felt like it had more sand in it. And, and if you hit it in that bunker, there was always a really good chance your ball was going to plug or you were going to have an uphill shot. That bunker's 12 feet deep or whatever. And you're out of really boggy sand. And behind that green on the back left corner, there's this little bunker. And that green was always rock. That bunker was always rock hard. It was like, you know, hitting off of a hard pan. And and the green falls away from you there. 
And it was the hard, like you couldn't pick two more different bunker shots on one hole, the front left bunker and the back left bunker. And I always remember thinking that, like, we would get to play at Royal Melbourne as employees and and you kind of knew when you were in the middle of that fairway, you just knew in your head, like, geez, if I hit it short in the front left one, it's probably going to plug. And if I hit it in the back one, that's the hardest up and down in the world. I'm never going to get up and down. And you, you, you just knew. And that was okay. Like, but it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. Like, no matter what bunker you hit in, it's going to be the exact same. It, it stinks too. I, I always say that the, why golf is the coolest game is because no matter what, you'll never ever be in the same exact position twice in your life. Like you could play golf every single day, all day long for the rest of your life. You'll never hit the exact same shot twice because you'll never have the same lie, the same exact wind to the same pin from the exact same yardage. Right. And that something that adds to that is having to like getting in the sand and feeling in your, your feet and in, in knowing intrinsically it almost rewards the experienced player that can analyze all that stuff and in a way the uniformity kind of dumbs down the game oh yeah i mean so you wrote a good article i think it was last week about the rough right thick rough versus low rough and whether you're going to get a flyer and how much more unpredictable that is than thick rough and i i I agree with that i remember we had a tournament once at TPC and the rough was really thick. And uh, I remember Mark Russell said, I want, look, we got to mow the rough Friday night because it's going to be too thick come Sunday. And again, me being, you know, superintendents are always protective of their golf course. And Mark Russell, he's a brilliant golf mind. Like that guy, he's really, really smart. And I remember saying to him, like, I don't worry about it. Like, I think it'll be fine on Sunday. I really don't think we need to mow the rough. And he explained that that was the first time I'd ever heard someone explain it to me that way. He said, listen, if you have the rough lower and they don't know whether the ball's going to fly out or how it's going to come out, it's going to be so much harder for them. And I never had thought of it that way. And he was the first one that explained it that way. And he was right. He's dead right. So, you know, it's funny, like everybody's talking these days about how to set courses up and scoring. And you just wonder, like, is that something... You know, if it was a little more irregular, would that make the that would you know that would change it up, right? The most irregular championships, the Open, and look what it does every year. You know, like that that you hit it in the rough there, you have no clue what's going to happen to the ball when it comes out. It could look like you're the easiest lie in the world and shoot sixty yards left. And yeah. I think that, and then I think the best part about it is what you what Russell alluded to is like. You have a couple though. You misjudge a couple of those, and that that's going to be in the guy's head, and that's the best place to be with a tour player. You got it. The only way you can challenge them is to make it feel like it's not a driving range. You know, totally. Like I remember a, a podcast you did. You said you did with Jeff once, and you talked about maybe it was when you were younger or in Melbourne, and he hit a drive, and it would go in the rough, and that that anticipation or that excitement, especially when you were young and you're playing in a club event and as you're walking up down the fairway and you're walking up to the ball, you're kind of like, oh, please be sitting good. Please be good. Yeah. And and that anticipation or that excitement of getting to it and it happens to be sitting up and you're like, yes, I can go at this now. If it's a par five, maybe you could get three wood and 
get there or ah, it's not sitting very good and wedge out. And I, I remember he said, you know, that's all gone now because you're walking down a fairway and you know exactly how it's going to be lying. And it's easier to get those irregular roughs and those irregular eyes when you're on sand too. And the golf course is on sand and the rough's going to be a little like pine, like it is down at Pinehurst or places. It's easier to get that when you're on sand. It's hard, like up here when you're on clay and it rains 40 inches a year and grass grows kind of nonstop. It, it is harder to get that irregular rough a little bit, right? It seems like you could, with that, if you didn't chase you know, that consistency, it seems like that, not knowing exactly, but for a, a superintendent, that's, you're constantly chasing your tail for that consistency and it probably costs a ton of money and it might, you know, it, it might, some would, I, this would be something that every, a lot of members would argue about, but it might cheapen the experience of golf. And, and then it also comes at a extreme resource time and money cost. Yeah, because I've hosted tournaments before where we would, you know, we might be double cutting and rolling the greens, right? And we'd stimp a green and for whatever reason, it's four inches slower than the green before. So we'd give it an extra roll, you know, to try to get it to catch up. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. As, As my time went on, as I got older, I remember just becoming a little more disillusioned with that and thinking, geez, like, okay that they're a little bit different it could too be like if you stimp it in one spot that's just subtly uphill right like you just stimp it in one place you could stimp differently in another place it's grass right it's growing it 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 could be different within a green well you wish you could say hey those two greens over there are really slow why don't you get nuts with the pin position on those couple because they're really Uh slow um but dean i mean so dean beeman he used to play at TPC Potomac quite a bit and I would always go out and kind of ride a hole with him and chat with him and he's a huge proponent of slow greens he used to even and the greens were never overly fast for member play but he always used to say to me like the greens are too fast they're too perfect it's easy to hold putts out here and why don't you slow them down and put the pins He, he was a big one for that he used to I bet he still does. He he always thought the greens were too fast and the putting would be so much harder if the greens were slow. And um, he was he was a huge pro. He hated the, the, the fact that the green speeds had gotten to where they were. I think I don't. I think he gets a lot of credit, but I still think he doesn't get enough credit for all the stuff he did and like his general thoughts on a lot of things. Like, I mean, that guy one of the most brilliant minds golf's ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting guy. Um, he hated thick rough and he, and he hated fast greens, at least when he would, he always plays his wife, Judy, and he'd say rough's too thick for my wife and it's no fun to play out of. And, and the greens are too fast when you get up on the green and yeah. Being somebody that loves architecture, talk about, I, I know, I don't think anybody would put TPC Potomac in like a, a master class of architecture mold. What was it like working at a golf course that doesn't really get your juices flowing from an architecture standpoint? It's a catch-22, right? Like 
I think about it a bit. Like if you if you did work somewhere that is a brilliant design architecturally, a lot of the times those places don't want to change anything, right? They're like, hey, this is kind of the holy grail. Just mow the grass, keep the grass alive, rake the bunkers. We like it the way it is. And rightfully so on some of the best designs in the country. But as a superintendent, most super, most superintendents always want to tinker and tweak with their golf course. So don't get me wrong, it would be great to work on some of those great designs. But at the same time, I think you do want a little bit of freedom to play around with them a little bit and within reason, right? Yeah, because if you're at one of the great, great spots, your job, you're a caretaker more so than if you're at somewhere where the pedigree is a little bit less and you've you've got a little bit more freedom. Right. I mean, the funnest jobs would be the guys that take over from somewhere that was great a long time ago and they've got good maps and good aerials. And then they've got a bit of a freedom to say to the club, hey, why don't, you know, this is how this hole used to be. 80 years ago and the fairway was this wide and these trees were out over here. And, you know, if you're okay with it, I'm going to take those trees down and I'm going to rip that rough up and I'm going to make the fairway wider and I can do all that in house. And that would be a lot of fun, right? Those, I mean, sometimes those are the funnest and we all know people that have gotten jobs like that and got to tinker with their courses. And sometimes those would be the funnest ones around to be able to look at, what you've done. I mean, like Curtis at Old Elm, right? That's one that comes to mind. I mean, I was there last year and it's, you know, he did so much of that sounds like in-house and I don't know the exact process they used, but how much fun that must have been and how proud you can be to look at it today at like what they've done and, you know, that a lot of it was him, right? So those, but the, the problem is there's not many of those left because lots of them are being restored thankfully and so there's not many of those left these days to to stumble upon yeah you know brian palmer the old superintendent at shore acres i uh i spent some time in his office and he had he had their old i I can't remember exactly what year it was maybe 29 ariel blown up huge i mean it was the entire wall right in front of his desk and he would just stare at it every day and they they got everything almost back and I remember I was in there and he just he would just look at the one spot the one or two spots that wasn't exactly and he would be like that's that's next that's next and that's like it like encompassed his life for you know five six years yeah didn't they overlay I think I heard a story didn't they overlay the plan on like a google earth map or something and it was almost spot on right Mm -hmm. yeah somebody told me that but, yeah, and there was one spot where he didn't do it exactly, and he was like, you know, really screwed that one up. <laughs> you right, could right. tell he just was really upset about it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that must be so much fun to get to get something like that, right? Um, yeah. There's not many of them left. I mean, there's plenty. Believe me, there, right, there are more yeah, than people know. realize. You would know. There's, yeah. There's there's some that have been restored that you go out to and you're like, you know, you didn't restore it. The the line's 20 yards off. Like why, you know, the bunkers in the, you know, doesn't cut all the way in and you can just see it because you can see the landform. That's one of my pet peeves is when you see a great 
great fairway landform and then the the fairway line is right on the middle of it and you're like and it's been restored and you're like how do you not see the the left half of that 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 land feature that was clearly the fairway you know these old architects didn't drape fairways over land features and then cut off put rough on half of it you know they wanted the ball to roll off it yeah yeah no i agree i'm sure i mean yeah, you would know. You've you've seen you you'd probably have a list of the ones that are still available to maybe to fix. But one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with you is uh, centers around. Uh, I guess I would call them knickknacks around golf courses. Oh yeah, your pet peeve. Yeah, like the furniture and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it gets crazy, right? There's there's companies out there that sell rubbish bins for. Two thousand dollars and stuff like that. I mean, I've done it. I've bought them. I mean, if you if you're at a club that I've, I've worked at clubs in the past where that was kind of what they wanted, and and that's what you do. But yeah, I, it's funny how I always think of that. Like, so back in Melbourne, they have a lot of the old sandbelt courses had these tea boxes, these steel tea boxes. It's, they're not really. I don't think you'd really use them for anything now, but they were for back in the day, they were a rubbish bin or I think they even might've put sand in them when they were before teas, right? And they were using sand to tee off of them. Those things were great. They look, Kingston Heath still has them. They look beautiful. But um, yeah, over here, they they love some furniture over here. Um, But some past clubs I've worked at, they, they want a lot of furniture. I mean, luckily, I'm most places I've been, I've been able to convince them to go back the other way, and it's been met favorably. And but yeah, there's some places you go to where it's it's everywhere. But yeah, you and I have visited some golf courses where you get a couple of holes in, and <laughs> well, yeah, you you look at it and you think, God, that's they just spent twenty thousand dollars on something that. They didn't need to spend twenty thousand dollars, and then you go in like the best spots, like the coolest places. Yeah, have this like homemade stuff, and like they, it's completely authentic and unique to them. And and the, that's the thing that it's like it happens where they think, oh, we're dressing up the place, but really, what you're doing is you're 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 making it more tacky. And if you just went out and handmade something, cut down a tree, and 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 just chopped up some blocks from the course you'd make the golf course better and you'd make the whole experience more unique like that i think that's like an underrated part and i don't know you know where it falls because i'm sure there's like a golf committee or a, some committee at a club that i don't even know you know what the title of is that dresses these things up but at the same time it almost should be in the hands of the superintendent because what it would do is it would it would create a unique feel and it would become, it's almost like a culture thing for the club. Yeah. There's definitely a movement back to it, right? Guys making their own benches out of logs cut in half and making their own tea markers. And there's definitely a movement back to that, but yeah, you're right. Like the best clubs in the country, they don't have, almost don't have anything. Yeah. Down on Long Island or clubs in Philadelphia and New Jersey. I mean, I remember going to one of the best clubs in the country once and, their scorecard box on like the second tee. So if you forgot to get a scorecard when you tee it off, get another one. It was just in a mailbox. 
I think this is what you're talking about. And I said to you, if that was at some clubs I've worked at in the past, we'd have bought a $2,000 scorecard box, you know, polished hardwood, looking beautiful. And But here's the one of the best courses in the country and they've just got an old mailbox with the scorecards in it. It's perfect. That's, um, and, and I went to the GIS show this year. I'm walking around. And I'm oh, seeing yeah. all these things. I'm like, how? Who goes there and buys this stuff? Like, you could. Yeah. There's so many things. It's like, I don't know. There's there's the same thing going. Same thing going on in golf. It's like you know, people buy sixty dollar alignment aids that are just wood sticks that are you know like yeah. It's like you and I were walking you, around the GIS show. That you started almost hyperventilating walking past <laughs> some of those furniture stores. Well, it's like it's, these are the same clubs that'll say, "Oh, we don't have money to fix the golf course," and it's like you just spent twenty five grand on useless shit for around the golf course. You could spend that, and you could you could expand a green for that much money. It happens, right? Yeah, it's, it, it it has happened. I mean, but you hope that's where you get the right people in place, and you can if you sell your vision well enough, and you kind of explain it well enough. Most most places will be open to. Most places get it. There's definitely a movement back to that. Back to that. I, I think a lot of places are starting to go go away from that. Um, yeah. Than, than where it was maybe 20 years ago. Um, yeah, it, it, it'll be cool. I, I mean, like, I think the the more golf can pull on its history, and obviously there are courses that don't have that history, but you know, make something. You know, make something yours because if you make something, then it's yours. Nobody else has that. Well, COVID's probably helped that out a little bit, right? Because a lot of golf courses had to pull everything off the golf course. That's true. And maybe some places now realize that, well, geez, you know, if you've if you've taken the ball washers off the golf course, maybe people are like, well, do you really miss them? Or maybe you don't need them, right? It's probably That's, COVID's probably well, one of the worst things that could have happened to some of those companies that make furniture, right? Because ball washers maybe the the thing that bugs me the most. And here's the other thing with the benches and stuff. Nothing's better than just going and sitting down under a tree. That's the best thing to do. Find some shade and sitting down on the ground. Yeah. Well, you'd hope pace of play is good enough that you don't really. Uh, you haven't, <laughs> you haven't been to a public golf course on a weekend in a while, Stephen. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. I know like a lot of superintendents I talk to, that's a bit of the talk right now, right? COVID has a lot of clubs have removed bunker rakes and ball washers and um, all the knickknacks. And some clubs are kind of realizing that, well, geez, maybe we didn't need all that. And so there's, there's, I know there's a lot of superintendents I talk to. That's, that's what they're all talking about right now is whether they, they can at least reduce some of it or whether some of it even needs to go back at all. What are some things on the maintenance, on like the the turf side that you've learned from COVID and restrictions and you know less staff, I imagine. And I mean, I'm I'm sure. I think everybody's having to do trying to do the same with less, right? It seems like play is up at most clubs, and which is a great thing. So on the turf side, I mean, there's only. There's only so much you can change. I'm trying to think. It's a, that's a hard one. I mean, we've definitely changed the way we mow some stuff and trying to figure out different ways to do things. But 
from the biggest impact I think is that is the, what we were just talking about the knickknack thing. That seems to be the biggest. That seems to be the one that everybody's talking about. The guys that I talk to, that seems to be the biggest thing that everybody's talking about. All found money. Yeah, my book. All the golf course accessory companies are going to come after me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to plot the way you walk around the GIS show next time. You're going to plot your way around. Yeah. Um, hey, it's, it's it's been fun. You're on Twitter. Uh, you're on Instagram. Big history in architecture. Not, I recommend following Stephen. He's got, he brings a lot to the, uh, to the social media world too. It's been great. And thank you, Andy. You, you do a great job and I've been listening for a long time. Back to when you and I first met at Belmont. That was a fun day. That was the one, that was a place where lots of money mismanagement there, those <laughs> brand new cart paths and then crying poor. Oh, that, that was, that was, a, that was a good couple of days, but uh, no, thank you for everything you do. And you and I have talked about this before many a road trip listening to the pods has got me through many a road trip so great job i appreciate it hey fun. thanks for coming on it's a it, i'm glad we got to do this it's uh it's always fun talking so uh we'll talk soon and uh thank you definitely